Hello, and welcome to Moves That Matters with Dr. Clyde Posley. I am your host, Dr. Clyde Posley Jr., and I'm excited to bring you three major topics today in this first episode. The first thing we're going to discuss is my new book out in October on you can that can be purchased on Amazon.com entitled More Than Icons and Images, Uncovering the Hidden Protest Narrative of the Black Athlete in the 21st Century. This book, I've toiled over it and really believe it speaks to uh, the plight of many African-American athletes as they seek to uh, represent their cultures in a powerful way. Then following that, we're going to have a political sports and political moment, and we'll have one every episode. In our sports and political moment, what we'll do is talk about the intersectionality between sports and politics, which is an ingrained component of the American fiber and has been for years and years. And then finally, in every episode, we're going to end with something straight out of the word of God, a discussion that designed to draw you in that's come straight from scripture. And then today, that title uh, that we'll be discussing will be Christianity and the kingdom of God, uncovering God's pathway to his heart. So just before I get into my discussion about the book, More Than Icons and Images, I want to show you a small snippet of a commercial that I did to kind of inform the nation about this powerful book. I'll be right back. Being a black man in America is like having another job. Arthur Ashe. According to theorist Patrick Miller, sports has held a prominent political place within America's society for 150 years. On October 16, 1968, in Mexico City, Mexico, that political place of prominence would be communicated to a world audience by two black male American Olympians in an unprecedented fashion. In an article entitled, Mandela New Sports, had the power to end apartheid, columnist Patrick Collins explains that Nelson Mandela, the legendary South African activist and politician, stood as one of the 20th century's most notable figures for his efforts to end apartheid. While he used a combination of methods to dismantle South Africa's system of institutionalized racism, sports were an invaluable resource that Mandela used to usher in social change. In 1995, during a speech, Mandela exhorted, sport has the power to change the world. It has the power to inspire. It has the power to unite people in a way that little else does. Sports can awaken hope where there is previously only despair. It is more powerful than government and breaking down racial barriers. As a former athlete myself, I learned that the sports field, the sports arena, is a place of molding for young men. In the African American community, a lot of the development of our thought process and our toughness came from sports, but also often our first experience with racism came in sports activities. As I began to matriculate in school and just interact with others in life, I learned that there is a relationship, a, a type of intersectionality between sports, race, and unfortunately, subjugation in society. The sports arena, for me, became a place where I noticed voice was powerful. I wrote this book to participate in that discourse. 
You have seen how a man was made a slave. You shall see how a slave was made a man. Frederick Douglass. A tentacle to the issues of race, sports, politics, and culture is understanding how America has treated black masculinity for its own purposes. It has been manipulated and controlled by gatekeepers and economic systems in America. Historically, the black male physique was manipulated. We saw this with castration during slavery and lynching. Yet, paradoxically, the black male body was also admired and seen as a spectacle to be admired. Whether it was Jack Johnson or Jesse Owens, the black male athlete has been commodified as an entity. This has led to a confusion or schizophrenic-like relationship between black males and American political and cultural infrastructures. When black males elect to use their own voices and their own bodies on their own terms, they're often deemed out of bounds and unpatriotic. This is a polemic in America. As Douglas Blackman reminded us in the book, Slavery as Another Name, when others try to control the image of black men in the sports arena, it truly becomes another form of slavery. More than icons and images, in my view, is relevant to readers everywhere uh, because sports is relevant to most people. Uh, in 1995, Nelson Mandela uh, is fam famously quoted as saying, sports has the power to change like nothing else. Mandela went on to say that it has the power to bring races and people together, even at times that governments cannot. This book, I believe, is relevant in the boardroom, at the barbershop, at the college dorm, but it's also relevant uh, on news stations. Why? Because sports is woven into the American fiber. And if, if we're going to be honest, subjugation is something that is a reality in every person's life, whether they choose to address it or not. These black athletes are helping us become awake to the realities of change. Often praised and respected for his physical prowess, it is time that we make the shift to thinking of black male athletes as capable, compassionate, multidimensional, and highly intellectual human beings that they are. He's disrespecting our flag. Get that SOB off the field. These are a couple of statements that are made by our current president relative to Colin Kaepernick and other African-American and sometimes Caucasian athletes who are protesting racial injustice, police brutality, uh, educational disparity for African-Americans across the country. The narrative about the black male protest has been hijacked, has been stolen and turned into something that was never intended to be. I'm not even sure that Colin Kaepernick expected an evolution of such a of event to crescendo into all that it has. But here's the, th here's the thing. Black protest among athletes is not new. 
Tommy Smith and John Carlos on October 16, 1968, uh, held up the iconic black power signs, not to promote black power, but to promote the need for black recognition. Uh, Jack Johnson, famous boxer from the 1920s, and other athletes over the years have fought for a political voice to be seen as more than just a muscle and more than just black men uh, who had athletic prowess, but that considered themselves to be thinkers, people who understood the needs of a people. They saw themselves as representatives. Harry Edwards, the uh, uh, professor from USC at, at Berkeley, said that Thomas Smith and John Carlos had such a powerful protest because they, they symbolized black men who were politically awake and they were intelligent black men. Both these individuals were graduates from San Jose College in San Jose, California. You need this book to gain a history. You need this book to understand the connectivity. You need this book to recognize the black thread that goes through the heart of black protest in America for, for over a hundred years. Joseph Clatterbaugh once said that for 350 years, that uh, uh, being black on American soil has been a social political reality. Truthfully, there's no such thing as not as being black and not having a real sense of responsibility to others in your culture and in society. Sports is the only means for some young men and women to voice. It's the only platform they have to talk uh, for a nation, for a culture of people. Nelson Mandela said it this way. Sports has the power to change. It has the power to bring people together, often in ways that government cannot. More than icons and images, uncovering the hidden protest narrative of the black athlete of the 21st century, my book that was out in October, can be purchased on Amazon.com or on DrClydePosley.com. Either way, get the book and let's have a discussion about it. We'll be coming right back with our political, sports and political moment. Which is more important, cultural justice or social justice? Many of you would have to agree that you've heard the term social justice for years, and most often we've attributed that to civil rights leaders like Dr. Martin Luther King, Mega Evers, Malcolm X, Fannie Lou Hamer, and others. But what about cultural justice? And a bigger question is, does cultural justice sometimes interfere with the potential of social justice? I say it does. Let me explain. Cultural justice uh, can be defined as people or a group of individuals who seek the solvency and development of uh, their culture, their tribe, their group, those indigenous to their experiences. And I'm not against that. I, I, I understand how uh, uh, buying black could strengthen the black culture or, or, or Latinos supporting one another can strengthen their culture. But when you buttress cultural justice up against the great potential of social justice, you often run into a problem. And here's why. Because social justice is designed, in theory, to cause all cultures to rise and benefit from the presence and prosperity of all other cultures involved. 
there is a multiculturalism, according to uh, 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 Charles uh, Davis in his book, Multiculturalism. There is a multiculturalism, meaning the development of cultures that can strengthen America. In my view, we can fight as much as we would like. and uh, But the truth of the matter is America is the greatest country in the world. And any great country is made up of good, strong cultures. We can never achieve the type of equality, whether it be uh, um, equality among genders, equality among races. We can never achieve real social justice if we only focus on our culture by itself. That is not to say I want to exclude my culture. But if Martin Luther King said it this way, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So, Pastor, should I abandon the needs of my culture and just look at the bigger picture? No, you do accomplish social justice by by strengthening your own house uh, in, in the process. But you cannot have your own house in your mind only. You want to strengthen your house to make the great American house the house it's supposed to be. Not just a white house or a black house or a house but a house where everybody has the same opportunities educationally, economically, spiritually, socially, because a better us makes a better we. We'll be right back with our theological moment. As I promised you, this is our theological component of our show, Moves That Matters. The title to this last segment is Christianity versus the Kingdom of God, finding a biblical pathway to the heart of God. In the book of Matthew, chapter number six and verse 33, Jesus makes a powerful statement, and the statement is just transcends uh just many of the statements that we, we try to discuss about Christianity. He says in Matthew chapter six and verse 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. He says, because for my heavenly father knoweth what you have need of before you ask. Wow. Jesus Christ, who is the son of God, who is the lamb which was slain before the foundation of the world, knows that he, he must be believed and faith must be placed in him in order for mankind to be saved. And yet he gives deference to God and says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What things? All of what he has discussed thus far in this Sermon on the Mount or what we often call the Beatitudes. What that does is create a dilemma for some and a conundrum for others in the sense that he says that we should seek the kingdom of God and he doesn't mention seeking it as a Christian. Now we know that the, that the first time that the word Christian was used in the Bible was in the book of uh, Acts chapter 11 and verse 29. And the, the Bible says there, that the uh, disciples were first called Christians there. Uh, an, another place is in First Peter, where Peter says, uh, at chapter four, that if we if one suffers as a Christian, 
uh, that he should do it uh, uh, to, without shame and to God's glory. And I'm paraphrasing. But, beloved, do you know that there is no place in Scripture where God outlines how to be a Christian? And I know some of you are watching this today and it's flying in the face of your theology because you may own a Christian school or you may label yourself as a Christian or you hear the term Christian all the time. But why don't we have any instruction in the Bible about how to be a Christian? We see the words. What we do have in Scripture, though, is Jesus Christ constantly making references by using to the kingdom of God by using phrases like the kingdom of God is like the king is his in his first uh, message to those who he had called to be his disciples uh, in the fourth chapter of the book of Matthew at the bottom the latter verses he says repent not because Christianity is at hand but because the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven is at hand is there a difference between the kingdom of God and Christianity. We don't have any references. There is no place if you, the word Christian is not mentioned in the Old Testament and there are no instructions as to how to carry out actually being a Christian in the New Testament. We are called disciples. Jesus called us friends. But the Bible is is full of passages in the New Testament spoken by Jesus Christ about how to live in the kingdom. When Jesus was asked by his disciples, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Jesus said these words in, in the model, in the prayer that models the elements of what prayer should consist of. He says, when you pray, pray in this manner. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Again, no reference to Christianity, but he told him to pray that thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Here, Jesus again, lifting up the kingdom, never making a reference to being a Christian. On the day that Jesus first mentions the church, which is in the book of Acts chapter 16, he asks his disciples, he leads into this conversation with uh, about the church with a question Who in Matthew chapter 16 saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? The disciples began to murmur among themselves and said, some say thou art Elijah or Isaiah or one of the prophets. But Peter, the most rowdy, seemingly uh, uh, thuggish, if you will, of the group, the one who had cut off Malchus's ear when he came to arrest Jesus the night he was crucified. Peter steps up and says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus, in response to Peter, says, Flesh and blood have not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say to you, thou art Peter. He goes on to say to him, and upon this rock, the rock being your ability to get revelation, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail, Jesus says, against my church. The next thing he says is, and I'm going to give you keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you loose shall be loose, and whatsoever you bind shall be bound. Here Jesus, on the day he mentions the church, rewards Peter's ability to get revelation about the church by giving him keys not to Christianity, but keys to the kingdom of heaven. I think the Bible clearly points to, points to this reality, and that is this. 
that the kingdom of heaven is the pathway to pleasing God, understanding the kingdom, walking in kingdom principles. A great deal of what I have been discussing with you is from a book that I read that's just a powerful book from one of the greatest teachers that God ever gave the kingdom of heaven. And it's this book here. And I want you to get it if you get a chance. It's by Miles Monroe and it's Rediscovering the Kingdom of God. That title alone is powerful because in rediscovering something, what you're suggesting is that it's not that you didn't have it, but you may have gotten away from it somehow. I submit to you today that there are some of you listening to, to, to this podcast, listening to this program, and if you'd be honest with yourself, you probably maybe slipped away from what the kingdom teaches in the Bible because you, someone has told you that you need to be a Christian to please God. I want to tell you something. There are no Christians in heaven. You don't get to heaven by being a Christian. You get to heaven, according to Jesus in uh, um, Matthew chapter 6, and verse 33, by seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So it stands to reason. Why is this not a teaching that you hear more often? I'm not the only pastor who knows it. I'm, I don't know it because of, of my doctoral pursuits. Uh, there are pastors who know these things. Why don't you hear more of this? Because the, Satan is in the mix, uh, in the mix, in other words. What Satan is trying to do is to keep us religious. And if, if he can keep us focused on a worldview of what God requires, which is Christianity, versus living according to the Bible and being a kingdom believer, then he can keep you steeped in a way of life that the Bible does not teach. And if you're trying to pursue a pathway to God that the Bible does not teach and you're using a label to get to it, I'm a Christian, I'm an evangelical, I am a this, I am a that, but the Bible doesn't tout it, it's not going to help you become intimate with God. And my brothers and sisters, the truth of the matter is we are not here to try to gain a label. We're not here. We don't follow God to try to gain a, a title. We follow God to try to be, uh, as Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, that we might know him and the fellowship of his suffering and the power of his resurrection. We have to, as Paul says in the, in the remainder of chapter 3 of Philippians, forget those things which are behind and reach for those things which are before by pressing toward the mark of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have to keep our eyes on the prize, as Paul says. And I want to tell you today that the prize is kingdom living. What is the first thing that is required for any person who wants to engage in true kingdom living? Well, I think the first thing needs to be is to learn how to be intimate with the God of the kingdom. Before you learn what what the constitution of the kingdom is, before you learn all the tenets of the kingdom, we have to keep the priority of the kingdom the priority. And that is that the king of that kingdom be worshipped. Because the way to real intimacy with the king is through worship. I want to tell you today, God doesn't need you to worship him. You need to worship him. God is God if you never worship him. But you can never know God if you don't worship him. 
And so one of the things that it coincides with what I'm teaching today in this segment is about intimacy with God and getting toward the kingdom by intimacy, then that means many of us need to revamp or rediscover kingdom-style worship versus Christian worship. If we don't revamp our kingdom-style worship, and this is going to bless somebody right now, I want you to hear what I'm about to say because it's really going to bless you. If we don't revamp our worship so that it becomes an intimacy, a type of worship that creates intimacy between us and God, then we run the risk of becoming like Satan and falling in love with our worship. In other words, Satan got in trouble because he his worship, he fell in love with the idea of worship and that worship became more about him than God. Let me explain to you what I mean. In Ezekiel chapter 14, it, the Bible describes how Satan um, was created by God, what Satan looked like, what Lucifer, his name was Lucifer, what he, what he looked like when God created him. He was adorned in jewels. The Bible says that the pipes were made within him. Satan was literally a beautiful instrument made by God for the purpose of worship. He, when he flew back and forth between the mount of God and, and the earth realm, the, the, a beautiful rainbow and kaleidoscopic colors were created, uh, as the light of God's glory shined upon the jewels that were in his, 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 his being. Uh, the Bible explains that every precious jewel was made in his being. And when he flew back and forth, the wind flew between the, uh, uh, in the pipes that were made within him. And he was a, literally a, a pipe organ of his own. He made music and kaleidoscopic beauty of rainbow as he flew back and forth. He became so much of the glory that, that the heavenly host used to worship God. He decided that there was too much worship going toward God and he wanted that glory for himself. He got so intoxicated with the notions of what he thought worship was, he changed the definition of worship and fell in love with the worship that belonged to someone else because of his own concepts. If we don't stop allowing people's concepts of Christianity to tell us what intimacy and worship with God actually is under the definition of worship, we run the risk of losing the true definition of worship, which is kingdom style worship. We do not want to let a false sense of what worship is defined by the world that we can't prove in scripture and labeled as Christian worship. So control us that we stop using the Bible to tell us what real worship is like. Real worship, kingdom worship is described in my opinion in the book of Mark chapter number 14 Verses one through seven. We have a story in the book of Mark, chapter 14, verses one through seven, where Mary worshiped Jesus in such a powerful way that by the time in such a kingdom style, pleasing to God way, that by the time she was done with this act of worship, Jesus promised her something because of her kingdom style worship that he didn't promise anybody else in the Bible. Just to jump forward for a second, then I'll jump back. By the time Mary was done worshiping Jesus, the way she worshiped him, Jesus said, every time this gospel is preached, I want what this woman has done to be remembered when this good news is preached. 
Now, I want you to think about the power of what I just said and the power of what Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 7 says. She so worshiped Christ that he he attached her form of worship to the gospel preaching forever. So in other words, the way when when he hears the God, when we hear the gospel preached, he wants this style of worship to accompany it if we're saying that we're kingdom worshipers. What did she do? The Bible says that uh, while in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, uh, this Mary, who was a former harlot who had been caught in sin, this Mary um, had had purchased, had saved up what Flavius Josephus suggests was a year's salary worth uh, uh, of, um, of money to buy a precious oil called spikenard. It came from a plant, a spikenard plant, a nard plant, and it, and uh, uh, the oil was called spikenard ointment. Spikenard ointment. This was a precious ointment, and it's got it got its name from how the plant grew. Now, this plant was so expensive, first of all, because it had to be flown in from not flown in, but it had to be brought in from India. This spike. This nard plant grew like a potato. It grew under the ground. It had a, uh, the leaves of it had spikes on it. A second reason it was so expensive, not only because it had to be brought in from hundreds of miles away, but because it had spikes at the top. And the only way to get it pulled up from the ground was, uh, and there were no leather gloves at the time that we have to, like we have today. So there was a sacrifice that had to be made to even even to harvest this nard plant. So you had to literally the person who was harvesting this nard plant had to snatch it up by grabbing the leaves that had spikes on it, which shed blood and pulled it up. Then they squeezed the nard plant into a bottle, a precious, a valuable bottle. And sometimes uh, uh, when you see in this in that passage of scripture, where it's an alabaster box in the original language, that is, is a alabaster bottle. And so this nard plant was put into a bottle. This woman takes a year's salary, saves up a year's salary in the house of this leper in Simon's house and in front of Simon, the leper in front of Jesus, the Christ and in front of other disciples, she breaks this bottle of ointment over the head of Jesus. She saved up all of what she had for the express purpose of publicly pouring it out on the head of Jesus where people could see her. What people could see her when she did this act, this kingdom style worship that caused her to be memorialized by Christ forever. She does it in front of a man who once had a death sentence named Simon, who was a leper. She does it in front of disciples who were wayward and falling away until Jesus called them. She does it as a woman who's a former harlot. And she does it on the head of Jesus before everybody. The principle I want us to start with understanding in terms of how to become intimate with Christ, kingdom style, so that our kingdom worship becomes something that pleases God versus a form of Christian worship that we can't prove in the Bible. She did this in front of people who were wounded. Often worship today, 
uh, is is a private matter. People will tell you that you can't tell them how to worship because that's between me and God, and you can't tell me I'm not worship. Well, this worship that caused her to be memorialized by Christ was done in front of a man who knew the value of a second chance. It was done in front of disciples who had no real prominent existence by and large except Christ, except until they got in a relationship with Christ. And it was done by a woman who was once caught in adultery. If we want worship that is intimate enough to cause Jesus to uh, uh, use it as a display, we have to be willing to publicly make sacrifices that are precious to us in the presence of people. True worship forgets, forgets, about what they, how bad we might look by spending more money or doing something that's outside of the norm. But true worship makes sure that it speaks to the once dying person who was the leper, that it speaks to the once ostracized disciples, and that it comes from someone who knows they would, they only have a life because of Christ. Now I have to tell you, in order for worship to become, if if your worship becomes like this and it becomes kingdom style and serious and and really starts you into a real intimate kingdom style fellowship with Christ, you're going to have detractors. In this passage of scripture, the very people who you would have thought were real followers and committed to the things of Jesus Christ became the enemy to her style of worship. Why? Because they did not see what she was doing as as an act of worship because it was foreign to what they thought worship was. It was something new. Often when you realign yourself with God and recommit yourself to the things of God, if it goes against what people have historically done, it flies in the face of what they are comfortable with and you often feel discouraged. As I wrap up this point today, I want to make this, I'm going to pick this up next week. I want to make this clear. When you get a revelation from God, like Peter did in Matthew chapter 16, and like this Mary does here about revelation, and you recognize that it pleases the heart of God, you cannot worry yourself about what people think about what you are doing. There will be naysayers to your revelation, but what you are going to gain from what you have learned outweighs what people have to say. That's going to wrap up our show today. God bless you guys for listening. I'm going to pick back up with this lesson next week, and, and I'm also going to talk a little bit about more about my book next week. I'm also going to talk about another segment of sports and politics. You can order the book, More Than Icons and Images, at Amazon.com. You can get this broadcast anytime you want on DrClydePosley.com. I want you to know there are moves that matter in your life. There are principles that orchestrate the moves that matter. Don't give up on God. Commit yourself to a move that matters and watch God grace you for what you stand in need of. God bless you guys, and I'll see you next week.